you want to find a seat, we're going to go ahead and get started. It's good to see you all this morning. Um, during, during the season of Advent, we usually turn to the Old Testament prophets. And this year, we're in the book of Isaiah. And if you remember the story, at this point in Israel's story, um, they had settled in the Promised Land, rose to prominence, especially under King David. They had some good kings and some bad ones. And the bad ones had gotten them into all kinds of trouble, usually by mistreating those on the margins. And the era culminated in the sacking of Jerusalem and the destruction of the temple in 587 B.C. The Babylonians carried off all the wealthy and educated leaders of the Israelites, and the people of God began a season of exile. And into that situation then came the prophet Isaiah. Um, and we pick up the thread in Isaiah 63 with this long speech in which he says, Your holy people held your sanctuary for such a short time before our adversaries trampled it down. We have become like those over whom you have never ruled, like those who are not called by your name. He's talking about this loss of the promised land and Israel's long descent into exile. And this passage, it's kind of funny, it's actually written in verse, like a song or a poem. It's this artistic question, like what happened? Like how did we wind up here? You brought us out of Egypt through the wilderness, through the promised land, into the promised land. We, we got everything we wanted, and now look at us. We've lost it all. Jerusalem is sacked. Our temple's in ruins. Our leaders are in exile. Those who are left behind in the land are in bondage, just like we were back in Egypt. How will we endure the bitterness of all we've lost? And Isaiah comes along and says, it's like we're looking around to find you, God, but it's like you don't want to be found. Like we used to call out to you and you would come and save us. It doesn't seem to be the arrangement anymore. I was reading this week and I was thinking, man, like, does anybody else feel like Isaiah right now? Like in, in our own time? I mean, it feels like our world is trending toward chaos. I just made a list of all the things that worry me. And I was like, man, I need some help. Like, I need to talk, go talk to somebody or something. Things like, um, this is my list, rising authoritarianism worldwide, looming climate change, economic injustice, racial injustice, religious nationalism, housing costs. I, I read this week they're up 47% over the last few years. Healthcare costs spiraling out of control, income inequality worsening, wars, political unrest around the world, democracy flagging here at home, a culture that's bitterly divided and kind of driven them by new technologies and smartphones and social media, so we're kind of siloed up and a little bit at each other's throats. I meet with a couple of my pastor friends every Thursday morning. We just sit around and gripe about you guys. And um, no, I'm just kidding, that's not what we do. We, but we do, we are, we are friends, have been friends for a long, long time. We got to talking about this and they were both feeling kind of the same thing heading into Advent. There seems to be a heaviness to, to the season this year. Uh, a lot of it, um, we were talking about maybe some unprocessed trauma left over from COVID and from the Trump phenomenon, you know? 
and um, among other things, things beyond that, but also just a, a lack of basic agreement about reality, <laughs> you know, what's real and what's true. Plus these powerful ideologies at work in the world just have us pitted against each other. And, and this all kind of punctuated by these outbursts of hatred and rage and even violence. And yeah, maybe it's always been this way. That's what my dad always tells me. It's always been this way. But I've been in ministry like 35 years now. I've never, I've never felt like this. I've never seen it like this. Things seem really bleak and dark right now, and people are very worried about the future to an extent I haven't seen before. When I read Isaiah right now, it leaps off the page for me. We're in a season of disorientation and, and even grief. It feels like exile to me. Isaiah's response was then to, to put into words this poetic longing for God to show up in the world and help them with, with their lives. He, he says, the dream, our dream, it feels like it's in tatters. Where have you gone, O God? And then he, then he says this, Oh, that you would tear open the heavens and come down so that the mountains would quake at your presence as when fire kindles brushwood and the fire causes water to boil to make your name known to your adversaries so the nations might tremble at your presence. I feel that right now. Oh, that you would tear open the heavens and come down because we need you here, God. We're in a, we're in a lot of trouble here. And, it, and if you just help us out, it, it would be great if you would just come down here and move powerfully against the wicked and rise up virtuous leaders who can lead us all toward faithfulness and justice. Even those who don't believe in God would go for this. But it's not happening. God seems silent. And Isaiah continues, he says, you were angry and we sinned because you hid yourself. We transgressed. It's, he's actually blaming God here for their issues. It's like, I know we transgressed, but you hid yourself. What did you think was going to happen? This is as much your fault as ours. We have all become like one who is unclean and all our righteous deeds, he says, are like a filthy cloth. We all fade like a leaf in our iniquities, like the wind take us away. So he's, he's lamenting the situation of exile and, and bondage in which they can't live like observant Jews. They're forced to eat unclean foods. They can't observe Sabbath or worship God. They can't live as they're supposed to live. And so they're making a mess of everything. He says, there's no one who calls on your name or attempts to take hold of you. For you have hidden your face from us and have delivered us into the hands of iniquity. You kind of got to admire the moxie of the prophets, you know. Isaiah is like, it's true. Nobody's calling out to you anymore, but it's your fault. You hid yourself from us. It's like he claims God is making things difficult, too difficult for them. Like God is too slow to react. And so they stopped asking stopped believing that God would move. And maybe if God did something, acted just a little more quickly, a little faster, they could believe in God's power. But it seems like God is being evasive here. Too difficult. And the people have wandered. And so Isaiah is kind of, this is what the prophets do. He's, he's accusing God. And the interesting thing is God doesn't get mad or correct him. God seems to actually sanction this idea that there's kind of a hiddenness to God. 
There's actually a theological name for this. It's called um, Deus Absconditus. Say that. Say Deus Absconditus. Yeah, it's, you sound like I do when I say it. Um, it. This actually, it means, it's Latin for the hidden God. It refers to this reality that God is not a visible thing in the universe. And because we can't see a visible God or hear an audible voice of God, um, God does not always seem to be present with us or working in the world. And this, this, this idea, the hiddenness of God, has always caused humanity some problems. Now, Isaiah blames God. He's like, this is your fault. And the weird thing is nobody tries to stop him. He actually, in a few chapters early, says it explicitly, truly you are a God who has been hiding himself, the God and Savior of Israel. And here he says, but if you would just tear open the heavens and come down here and help us, if we could just see you, it'd be easier to follow, you know, and believe. Anybody feel that? Why does God have to be so invisible? Why does God seem to move so slowly and mysteriously? It becomes hard to see, hard to trust it's going to happen. And the image that Isaiah uses here to explain it is that God is like a a potter working with clay. Isaiah's assumption is that the reason for the hiddenness of God has to do with God helping us to finally become human, as human is meant to be. God's not just messing with us to have fun, you know. God is forming us like a potter working with clay, trying to help us realize our full humanity, which involves developing this capacity to commune with an invisible God, a capacity to love our neighbors as ourselves, a capacity to lay down our lives for others so that everyone can flourish. And this has to do with the very nature of God and the nature of humanity. And this idea that God is not a thing in the universe. God is not an item on a list of other items. God cannot have a form because form implies boundary and limitation and God is without limitation. God is infinite. And when finite things like human beings get involved with infinite things like God, it usually spells trouble for the finite things, you know? And the closest example we have of this, it's not the same, but it's analogous, is the power of nature on our planet. You know, most of the time we think we, we have tamed nature. You know, when anytime somebody asks me if you could be born in a different era, I'm like, any era after air conditioning, and I'm fine. Like, I'm in. <laughs> right? We've mostly tamed nature, but every so often nature clears its throat and says, you know, I'm here, and I'm big, and cannot be controlled. You know, hurricanes and storms and fires and natural disasters. When, when the finite touches the infinite, it's, it doesn't go. Like, the, the finite is usually just consumed by, by the infinite. So, so when, when you and I, as finite creatures, come in contact with the infinite of God's being, we, it, this would overwhelm and consume us. And, and yet God has placed, the scripture says, something of the infinite in the hearts of humankind something that longs for the infinite within us, something that drives us to reach out to God, to try and sense God's presence. And yet, at the same time, God 
isn't just like this, you know, blowtorch. God has done something to God's own self to protect us in our interactions with God. So if humans come in contact with like the full force of God, God would just overwhelm. We'd be, we'd be completely consumed by it unless God has spread God's self out in a sense over all of time, all of space. It becomes so thin that like at, at any point of encounter with the divine, God appears to us as weakness. So that God doesn't seem infinite at all. God seems small, hard, hard to see, invisible, weak even, like a baby, like a man hanging on a cross. Anybody ever pray and feel like nobody's listening? Anybody not ever pray and feel like nobody's listening? I mean, it's, it's, anybody reach out to God for help and feel like God does nothing? Stays silent? Maybe crave a deep connection to God, but it just doesn't happen? That's this deus absconditus, the frustrating hiddenness of God. It can be confusing and painful and lonely, and it has always bothered the people of God. And so they've always asked in one form or another, why don't you tear open the heavens and come down here? I mean, it would be easier, right, if God would just, you know, take on some sort of human form that we could recognize, if God would just show up and begin to help us. And yet, what would we do if somebody showed up here today, a human being claiming to be God? You know, we'd put them away, right? It's, or medicate them. And plus, we've been down this road before, like 2,000 years ago with, with Christ, and look how that happened. That turned out. But then why can't God just maybe invisibly fix things? Just make our lives the way that we want them to be. Well, for one thing, ever know anybody who has gotten everything that they've ever wanted and didn't have to work for it? Like the people who were born on third, third base and thought they hit a triple? You know those guys? <laughs> You're thinking of somebody right now, aren't you? This is horrible for us to just get everything we want. It's bad for us. It makes us into monsters or makes us depressed. But for another thing, God might be doing something else. Like maybe God is trying to get us to do um, what we're created to do, intended to do, which involves taking responsibility for the mess we've made of the world, or just for the world itself. You know, this is a human vocation. We talk about this a lot, clear back in Genesis. What God commands humans to do and over and over repeats it is, be fruitful and multiply. Fill the earth and subdue it. Like have dominion, leadership over it. And then till the earth and keep it. Care for it. Preserve it. Cause it to, to flourish and, and be organized in, in a way that, that could be called shalom or peace. This is, this is what God wants from us. But God um, steadfastly refuses to overfunction for us. 
and do it for us. God is pushing responsibility for the world back on us, going, you can do this. And yet the fact remains, it's painful to cry out to God and feel like God's not doing anything and the world's about to fall apart or to reach out to God for comfort and feel like God is silent, you know, and nothing seems to change. It's, it's painful to crave a connection with a God and then the connection doesn't materialize. It's this hiddenness of God, deus absconditis. It's confusing, it's painful, and it is the source of so much human struggle. And so the people of God, we just, we're, we just have to ask, why don't you tear open the heavens and come down? Isaiah has this particular way of trying to make sense of the hiddenness of God. He seems to think that it's like somehow for our benefit, part of how God loves us. And the prophet turns then from his lamentations here. His voice gets kind of soft and he says, Yet, O Lord, you are our father. We are the clay and you are our potter. We are all the work of your hand. Do not be exceedingly angry, O Lord, and do not remember our iniquity forever. O look on us, we pray, for we are all your people. Dietrich Bonhoeffer said it this way. He said, God, let's God's self be pushed out of the world and onto the cross. He is weak and powerless in the world. And that is precisely the way, the only way in which God is with us and helps us. We talked about this a few weeks ago. God doesn't show up as the hurricane or the fire or the wind. God comes in the silence. And only those who have cultivated a sensitivity to God will be able to discern God's presence in the world and to respond. The prophet says we have to be thrown on the wheel like a potter shaped and formed by the artist. We are the clay. You are our potter, O oh God. Our lives are the work of your hand. In the ancient world, there was a potter in every little town. Every child who grew up in the ancient world had walked into a potter's shop and seen a potter at work on a wheel. It was sort of like you know, going to the dry cleaner or a hardware store for them. But for us, it's, it's not something that we see very often in our daily lives. So just getting to see it happen could be really good for us. Because this, this image of a potter working on a wheel with clay became a powerful way for the people of God to make sense of the hiddenness of God and the pain of it all. It fed their imagination, um, helping them connect the dots between their present struggle. And it's where it was that God was trying to take them as a people. The potter and the clay, it, it gave them like a hopeful way to interpret the way they kept calling out to God and often felt like nothing, felt only an absence and the power of the image was sort of in its ordinariness. Eugene Peterson says, faith is not a leap out of the everyday, like a way to escape the everyday. It's a plunge into its depths. 
Faith is not a way to escape ordinary life or just see the ordinary trials of life, but a way to experience meaning in the midst of it, to see God at work in normal, ordinary things. I mean, if God, if God seems hidden and evasive, especially when we need God most, and God's not messing with us, not being cruel, but has somehow become weak at any point of contact for our own good, then nothing could be more important than learning to spot the hand of God forming our lives and shaping us in the midst of ordinary, everyday things. I think Peterson's right. Like We need to learn how to plunge into the depths of the ordinary, the infinities, not at the edges, but the infinities in the middle. That's where faith comes to life. And the potter, it was a rich image in the ancient world, and a very ordinary one. They all knew the ins and outs of it. And it's an earthy task. It's such a, a tactile image the prophet is using here. I mean, you, and you, you have to get your hands dirty when you throw pottery. And it requires your full attention. You know, you can't multitask. There's no potting with one hand and scrolling Twitter with the other hand, right? Sometimes it requires great strength and forcefulness, especially toward the beginning, you know, of the process, when the clay's cold and hard. You cut a piece off the block, you slice it in half, you slap it together, and begin to knead it. And of course, at first, it doesn't want to give way, which, like, sounds familiar. We're like that, too. My heart is often cold and dark and unpliable, unwilling to give way. But God is a potter. And the potter has to patiently knead the clay before it goes on the wheel, both to make it pliable, also, weirdly, to get the bubbles out of it. I understand bubbles are a problem, like they're an impurity in, on the wheel. If you fire a clay pot, that has air bubbles in it, it, it'll often explode. It can just, it can destroy every other thing in the kiln. So you have to work the clay until the bubbles, the air bubbles are gone. And the only way to do this is to apply force, to push, to pull, to knead the clay until it softens to the artist's touch. Toward the beginning, this takes strength, it takes force. There's no pottery without pressure starts out as a cold, unrefined lump. It takes a lot of work to get it to the point where it can even go on the wheel. And then when it goes on the wheel, there's more pressure, only now it's a little more subtle, you know? It's slow, it's careful, it's measured. It's not just, you know, squeezing and pressing and kneading. Now, there's intentionality. There's purpose for every ounce of pressure. It's almost kind of a tenderness to it but yet still strength and power, but it's controlled. The artist is shaping, slowly letting something emerge from the clay. Not to overwhelm it, you know, and ruin it. It's funny, people who throw pottery, they talk about a sensitivity to the clay itself. My sister-in-law is a sculptor and um, she says that she tries to listen to the clay. She says it speaks to her sometimes. 
The clay communicates to the potter something about itself, and the potter has to sense it, sense what they can and cannot do with that particular piece of clay. Sometimes they try to force it, tell the clay what to do, and it will, sometimes it'll comply, but sometimes the clay speaks back. I don't want to be that. I want to be this. And the good artist goes, oh, okay, we can work with that. I mean, think about that image, just that one alone, that God actually listens to us, takes into account what we want, and at the same time is trying to draw out of us our deepest longings and desires, leading us to like, realize them in ways that lead to our flourishing and the flourishing of anyone we touch. The potter doesn't just impose their will on the clay. They, they listen. There's this kind of give and take. It's part of this image as well. My sister-in-law told me it's easy to overwork the clay. You can ruin it that way. It'll break down if you try to push it too far. That's why master potters are so patient. When they get a hold of clay that's unwieldy at first, like it's fighting them, working against them, they know We'll have to be patient with this piece and work it slowly. Most of the time, they can, they can do it. They can find a rhythm, and the clay will come up and start to come to life and take shape. Sometimes those most unwieldy pieces turn out to be these amazing works of art. Little Hebrew children, man, they, they knew this image. They watched the potter in their town at work. They knew what it was like to be in the hands of, of a master. And God is a master on the wheel. This isn't God's like, first time shaping a human life or a human community. God knows what to do with all kinds of clay. Sometimes God will push the clay pretty hard in our lives, in our world. Sometimes God knows too much pushing. It really could destroy us. And so God just like steps back, waits us to soften to the touch, waits for us to respond, waits for us to come up so that God can begin to work with us. But it takes trust. We have to believe that God knows what God is doing, that God is a master. Um, my sister talked about when things go wrong on the wheel. She's like, you can learn a lot about an artist when th things go wrong on the wheel. Some, she's seen people like smash the clay and throw it across the room. And, and other people will just stop and put it to, si to the side and just kind of wait and think about it. Maybe come back a little bit later. Sometimes they'll come back to it, take a walk, come back and realize, I, I like this a little better than I thought I liked it. It's, it's, or, or they come back and they realize what they should do with it. I mean, God is like this. God has infinite patience and imagination. And for most of us, we, we, we just experience God's patience as pain, as frustration. We want a God who will do what we want God to do. That's what we want, even if it might not be best for us. What Advent teaches us is the importance of waiting, to see the waiting as part of the process, an important part of becoming human, and to trust that God has all the time in the world. God has all the time in the world. 
to see what everyone else has missed about, about you, about us, even to see what we have missed about our own lives and each other. Eugene Peterson, again, he says, the life of faith is very physical. I love that. It's physical. It's not just spiritual. Being a Christian is very much a matter of flesh, he says, of space and time and things. It means being thrown on the potter's wheel and shaped our entire selves into something useful and beautiful. And when we are not useful or beautiful, we are reshaped. And it's painful, he says, but worth it. As we receive communion today, um, I want to make space for us to just watch the potter at work on the wheel. And I want to invite any, anyone who wants to stand up here and watch a little closer to, to do that. As we come forward for communion, we'll just, anybody who wants to crowd around, take a turn at the front watching. As our kids come back in from their classes, feel free to let them come up here and, and sit close and get a good look. I want them to remember this image, just to have it embedded in their mind. It will do good things to them. And our musicians, I'm going to invite them up now to come up and, and play a song for us. And we're going to receive communion the way that we always do. But once you've received, feel, feel free to kind of crowd around and take a turn at the front. But as, as we do this, I want to begin this with um, this image in your mind, just kind of a med meditation. Just imagine you and the span of your life as one, one round on the potter's wheel. Living in a world that seems cold and dark, yes, right now where it's hard to imagine that things will get better. It's easy to feel a sense of grief, to feel weary and beaten down. But I want you to imagine your life on the wheel and that the potter is good. The potter is a master and the potter loves you. And then maybe to, to, to begin to hope, begin to hope that this, this is all going somewhere that's useful and good and beautiful that hiding within the clay of our lives, the cold and hardened clay sometimes, is a beautiful work of art. The image of God just waiting to be reflected out into the world by you, by us, in a way that only your body, in a way that only our community can do. This is Advent. Advent is about learning to wait, learning to trust, learning to hope, that God is a master, that God knows what God is doing and can be trusted, and that if we'll just keep faithing it, you know, keep moving forward, living in fidelity to each other, even when it's hard, even when we don't want to, that we'll find a rhythm. Our lives will come up, they'll come to us, and we'll come to life and be something beautiful in the world. Amen? If you would stand, please. We're going to receive communion now. The way we do this at Redemption is you'll just be released row by row by the ushers, and you'll come forward and um, be a line of people. Just pick out somebody who's kind of open, and they'll offer you a plate of bread and a cup. Just take a piece of the bread, dip it in the cup, and receive it. And they'll say, remember the body and blood of Christ. And you can say, I will remember, or however you're comfortable responding. The reason we do this is on the night that he was betrayed, 
Jesus took a loaf of bread and a cup, and he made all his guys share in, this, in the same you know, little piece, pieces of food. And he said, this is a symbolic thing like this. It's bread is like my body. The, the, the wine is like my blood, my life. He said, whenever you gather, I want you to just receive my life into your life symbolically. Be made out of the stuff I'm made out of. And then sent out into the world um, to be my hands and feet. He said, whenever you gather, do this. And so this is why we receive communion. And um, it's also why we don't, like, put limits on it. Anybody who calls on the name of Christ can join us in this. Um, but first, before we do this, let's pray a blessing on the table. Lord, we give you thanks for this bread and this cup. May it be now to us a spiritual food and drink. And as we receive you into our bodies May we receive your spirit, your life once again. Come and live inside us. Make us new from the inside out. And then send us out into the world to be salt and light. And let the world feast on us and taste and see your goodness. All this to the glory of Jesus Christ, our risen Savior, who lives and reigns with you and the Holy Spirit, one God now and forevermore. Amen. Will you come?